Well, we're going to get personal here this morning. It's all right if we get personal here at church. We're going to talk about your family. I want to ask you a question. Do you want your family to make it? Who wants their kids to grow up and be Christians? Anybody want their kids to grow up and be Christians? Okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a second. That's not what's happening in a lot of families who go to church. Their kids are leaving the church. They're not sticking with it. So how, do you, how does your family really make it? How does, how does the belief of the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ get passed from one generation to the next? This is becoming a more and more rare thing. I mean, divorce is on the rise. Kids saying to their parents, I can't wait to get out of this house is on the rise. Parents thinking to themselves, I can't wait for you to get out of this house is on the rise. I mean, the family is at an all-time low in the history of our nation, and just the idea that we're a family, we're good people, we're going to make it, that idea is being eroded. The facts are saying something different, especially if the goal is to live your life for God. A lot of parents who say that they live for God, it's not being seen in their children living for God. So how is your family gonna make it and maybe right now you you got a family you got kids growing up in your house maybe your kids are now adult children maybe you're thinking about grandchildren maybe you're somebody who's hoping to have a family of your own at some point in the future you're newly married you're engaged you're just you're just growing up how do families make it what is the design because here's the thing, when you do the family the way that God says to do it, it, not only do you make it, you make a difference. Real families, the way that God has said that the family should be, they have an impact that goes beyond even the home and the family. The reason that I'm standing here today, the reason that I'm preaching to you the Word of God is because God did a work in my family when He saved my dad and mom and He brought them together and they read to me the Bible as a child. They taught to me this book. That is why I am here now preaching this book. If you don't know, my dad's a pastor in San Antonio, Texas at this place called Believer's Fellowship. He's been there for over 20 years as the pastor. He's got three sons. All three of us are now pastors, okay? I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm speaking to you as a pastor right now. My brother, Pastor Bill, he's here. He'll be doing the baptism class right after this service. Our other brother is right now wrapping up preaching in Boise, Idaho area, where he just planted a church last year. And so when you, people find out that there's three boys in your family and they all became pastors, they look at you like, what was going on at your house growing up, you know? Like, was it some kind of weird seminary program that you guys were doing at your house? Like, what was going on? Let me tell you what was going on. We read this book. That's what was going on. We got, in, we got into the Bible, Okay. It, it, that's all. My, my dad, for the first few years that he was a pastor, I don't think he would have recommended it to anybody. It wasn't going very well for him. He wasn't telling us to be pastors. I didn't want to be a pastor. Bill didn't want to be a pastor. Our youngest brother was going to be the president of the United States. That's what he said. That could, maybe would have been a good thing, you know what I mean? But nobody was saying they were going to be a pastor. But here's what we were all saying. Let's get into this book. This book right here is how your family is going to make it. And this is how your family's going to make a difference, okay? So open up the Bible with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, to the most famous passage in all the law. It's on page 151 
if you got one of our books, and I'm going to call the ushers to come forward, and they're going to give everybody for free here today a Deuteronomy Bible study booklet, all right? These people are excited, okay? All right, now some other people are excited. Definitely some of you are not excited. Hey, if you don't want to read Deuteronomy with us, you need to listen to this sermon, all right? Uh, this isn't optional. This isn't extra credit. We're saying we're going to read the Bible together as a church. And uh, we want you to do it with us. And so we want you to do it so bad. We have a schedule for everybody to be on the same page. And for every day on this schedule, you can open up this book and there's a little, a little Bible study to go along with it. So it's not just you reading it by yourself, but there's some cross-references, some questions to help you think it through, to kind of make some of the connection from the context here in the time of Moses to our time today. Deuteronomy, if you're taking notes, you want to start with this. Deuteronomy means the second telling of the law. That's what the name means, okay? It's a Greek word, and you can kind of understand it. Duo, deutero, duo, two. Namas is the Greek word for law, the second time through the law. So what this is, mostly in Deuteronomy, is Moses giving his commentary on God's revelation in the law to this next generation. Remember, there was a group of people that got delivered out of Egypt in Exodus, God established a, a relationship, a covenant with them that we saw how it works in Leviticus. And then God was ready to take them into the promised land in numbers, but they did not believe the promise. They lacked faith in God. And so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. And as they died off, now this next generation is coming of age. Now they're going to be the people who go into the promised land and to get this generation ready, Moses tells them the law the second time. That's the book of Deuteronomy, okay? It's Moses's commentary, Moses's teaching of the law. And if you look at your booklet there, on the cover, we gave one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's one of the most fascinating discoveries in all of the history of archaeology, it happened out in the middle of the desert in Israel by the Dead Sea. There's these caves at Qumran, and in the 1940s, they found an ancient library of scrolls, and they dated these scrolls. These are not Christian archaeologists, but the best of the best archaeologists getting into these scrolls, these are from the time of Christ. This ancient library is dated like B.C. or at the time of Christ. And what that discovery proves is that the law of Moses, all of the prophets, all of the writings here in this book, all of those prophecies were all written down before Jesus fulfilled them. The prophecies of Scripture are not fake. They were in circulation before the time of Jesus. And they're all really true. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that were written hundreds of years. And they found an ancient library to prove it. And when they found the ancient library, there were so many books or scrolls of Scripture. And three of the books had more copies than the others. The Psalms... The songbook of Israel was one of the big ones. Isaiah, the most famous, the longest of the prophets, was one of the big ones. And the third most popular one out of the top three, in the top three, Deuteronomy. 
quoted by the prophets, quoted by the psalmists, quoted by Jesus, quoted by the founding fathers of the church. This is a book so important. Moses, his words to the people, so important that everybody else who writes the Bible thinks they should quote Deuteronomy as a part of their writing. So if you're not familiar with this book, I really encourage you, this is the time. This is your opportunity. If you know the book, you know it's going to be worth us spending a month of our lives diving into it. And out of everything we've studied in the law, this being our fifth month going through this together, out of everything you can read in these first five books of the Bible to the Hebrews, this passage right here, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, was the most famous one out of all the passages. This is there, John 3, 16. It's called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word to hear, which is the first, first, first word here in verse 4. And this, this is what we get the greatest commandment from. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is from our passage today. So I'm going to ask everybody if you would stand up as we read this scripture together. The most famous of all scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. It's on page 151. Please follow along. Let's give this our full and undivided attention. Let's have no distractions, no divisions in our heart. But let's hear. Let's really do what it means here. Shema. Let's hear what God says to us today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's the reading of God's Word. Please go ahead and have your seat. So the famous statement here of Shema, Israel, the Lord. And remember, when you see L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that's his name, Yahweh. That's how he, when, when Moses said, how shall I introduce you? Say, I am that I am. That's kind of the idea of this name, Yahweh, right there. Yahweh's our God, and Yahweh is one. This is a famous statement. Yahweh, our God, is one. Now, a lot of times when people quote that verse, they do it in reference to the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is a critical thing for all of us to understand in our theology, in our knowledge of God. We believe that there is one God, but He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do we all want to affirm that we believe the Trinity here this morning? Do we believe that here today? Okay, that's an important thing for everybody to understand about God. I don't know that that's what this verse is saying, though. So what we have to do is when we're studying a book of the Bible, we have to try to get in the mindset of who is the one writing the book and who were they writing it to? What is the author's original intent? Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, God's nation that's about to go into a land where there are many nations and they have been commanded to drive out some of these wicked nations and God's going to give them their land because those nations are wicked and so God's going to judge them and he's going to give the land to his people and so that's who we're talking to now at this time 
and the nations of the world, well, they all believed not just in God, they believed in gods. Polytheism was the normal course of the day. So that's different than the way that you and I think today. We think somebody, maybe they believe in God, maybe they don't believe in God. At this time, Everybody believed in many gods, and then the Israelites are like the one nation saying, yeah, we believe in God, and there's just one God. So it's, the contrast is people believing in many gods to there being just one God. That's the contrast that we're making. The thoughts of the nations are, hey, if this is a God, let's, let's make an idol of this God, let's worship this God, because then maybe this God will give some kind of benefit to us. Or this God will allow us to do something that we want to do. In many nations, their, their idols allowed sexual immorality in their land. And so they would think, if the gods are going to benefit me, if the gods are going to allow me to do what I want, then the more gods I have, the better it is, the more benefit for me. And so they wanted to worship many gods, many gods fighting for them, protecting for them, providing for them. More gods, the better. That was the mindset of the day. Now you got Israel saying, no, there's one one God. There's only one. There's only one place you're going to find life. There's only one that you need to protect you and provide for you. There's only one God. He's our God and his name is Yahweh. That's what made this people distinct and set apart from all the other nations that we're talking about. Because God was one. So this is something that God thought was so important. He was so jealous for his people to understand that I am Yahweh and there is no one like me. There is no other God. All of those idols can't really see. They can't really hear you. They can't really do anything for you. You want to find life somewhere else, you're not going to find it. You look anywhere besides me, you're not going to find life. You're going to find death I am the one God, the one way to live. You want to live? you got to do it through me. God is jealous for the worship of his people. That's what this is saying. There is only one God. And if you want to worship, if you want to really live life the, may, the way it was meant to be done, you have to do it through Yahweh, our God, the one God. Now, I have an example here in Deuteronomy 13 that I want to share with you. If you'll turn over to Deuteronomy 13, and i got to tell you what a blessing it is to dive into this book, to be studying it, to write this booklet. And there were some passages that I want to share with you over the weeks to come that just leapt off the page. This passage was something I wasn't as familiar with. It wasn't on my radar. Let me just warn you that this is going to be an intense portion of scripture that I'm about to read for you. And this this is going to just hopefully put in your thoughts the idea of how much does God want to be my one and only? How much does God want to be first place in my heart? How much does he want to be the one that I am thinking life comes from? That's what this is going to make very clear. Deuteronomy 13, look at verse 6 here, and I want you to really think through this passage with me. And this is a warning throughout Deuteronomy not to worship anyone, seek life anyone, but God. Look at how it says it here. If your brother, the son of your mother, let's think about that for a second, your brother. Okay, I got a brother who's here with us this morning, Pastor Bill. We go all the way back. You got a brother you go all the way back with? Think about your brother. Then it says, or your son or your daughter. You got a son or a daughter? Think about how much you love them. Think about them growing up right in front of your eyes. It says, or the wife 
you embrace, speaking of the intimacy, the closeness that is experienced only between a husband and a wife in marriage. People who are literally physically closer to each other than any other people. So let's bring, let's bring your closest loved ones. Let's talk about your brother, your son or your daughter, your spouse, and then it says this, or your friend who is as your own soul. You got a friend like that? A friend that you can say you love them as much as you love yourself? Like you have a soul-to-soul connection. They're not physically your brother or sister, but you think of them that way? You got a friend like that? Where if they got a promotion and you didn't, you would honestly rejoice because that's your friend and you love their soul? I mean, we're talking about one of the people that's closer to you than anybody else. And now they're going to come and whisper something to you. Now they're going to come and say something to you. Look what it says. They entice you secretly saying, hey, let us go and serve other gods. Hey, I got an idea. Let's go see if there's life over here. Let's go see if we can find some benefit somewhere else besides Yahweh. Hey, I've heard about this idol. This idol supposedly does this for you. Let's go try it. Let's go check it out. One of the closest people in your life, someone you love, they come and they entice you. They whisper to you, hey, there's life somewhere besides God. Let's go find it. Okay, so they're going to go idolatry, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Something new that you're going to try. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, picking up what everybody else is doing in these other nations. Hey, we're missing out on what the world has to offer. Let's go be like everybody else. Some of these gods, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. Okay, so think it through. Do you have that picture of your loved one? in your mind, and now they've come to you and they've whispered to you, hey, maybe there's another way besides Yahweh, besides the God of the Bible, to give us life. Maybe we can find it here. Here's how you're supposed to respond to your loved one saying that to you. Verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. When I read that, what? So they want to say something to me about worshiping another God, and my response immediately with this person that's so close to me that I love is that I must now kill them. Wow, let's think about that for a second. Is, Is God saying that he must be first place, and even if one of the people that is so close to you wants to go somewhere besides him, he must be first? He expects your loyalty to him to be greater than any of your loved ones in your life. You shall kill him. I mean, look what it says. It goes on to say, here's how this is going to work. Your hand, you're going to be the first witness against them to put them to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. This is deserving of the death penalty. You are now a witness against your loved one that they want to go and worship another God. Go back to verse 8 and let's really think this through. Don't yield to him or listen to him. Don't even give the conversation to them. Don't even let them keep talking about that. 
Cut them off immediately when they suggest it. Nor shall your eye pity him. That's a harsh statement right there. You're now going to kill somebody you love and you can't even feel bad. You can't even have compassion. You can't even be sorry. Nor shall you spare him. You definitely can't compromise and let them off. Nor shall you conceal him. I could imagine immediately saying something like, don't say that. Don't ever say that again. Don't ever let anybody know you even said that. That'll just stay here between you and us. No, it doesn't say between you and them. God knows about it. And God is making it clear through this. Picture everybody, the close people in your life. Picture them leading you away from God. In your mind right now, is God the one or are you going with them? Because God's saying in Israel here at this time with their law, that's deserving of the death penalty. If someone's leading you away from me, you must choose me. I am the one God. Jesus clearly echoed this statement when he said, you have to love me more than father, mother, son, daughter, wife, husband. God must be first place or he will be no place in your life. Point number one, there is no one else to go to. There is only one God. You want to live life the right way? You want to find life for your soul to the full? There's only one place to find it, only one way to go. You have to go to God. Yahweh's our God, and Yahweh is one. There is no other option. God wants to make that clear. And if somebody tells you there is another option, no, you've got to put God first over that person. So God demands to be first place in your heart, to be the number one priority in your life. And he is jealous for this, to the point where even whispering or speaking of the idea of something else besides him is deserving of the death penalty. Now go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because after that statement of the Shema there, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, we now get the greatest commandment in all the law, okay? In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. The greatest commandment out of all the commands. Now, remember, when they came and asked Jesus that question in the Gospels, the religious leaders, we call them the Pharisees, but they were the scribes. They were the people who had the the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books that we're calling the Law of Moses. They knew these. They were supposed to teach them to all the people of Israel. And when they came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment out of all the law? What's the greatest commandment? It was designed to be a trick question. There are so many commands in these books that we've been reading. How could you possibly pick one out of all the commands and say this is greater than all the others? We got him this time. We're going to stump Jesus. That was the whole goal of what they were trying to do was to get Jesus in a word trap. And Jesus right away gives the answer. I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your might and if you've heard that before don't let it be a cliche today you got to give God all you got that's the greatest command he's number one and so you better give him everything that you are whatever could be attributed to you as a person as a being whatever makes you you it's all gotta be in love for God all given to him like you're responding to God with 100% all that you are. 
That's the greatest commandment. Jesus, right there. Boom. I'll t- oh, you guys want to know? I'll tell you what. This is the one that God cares about more than all the other ones. God wants to know that he's got all of you. And the Bible is clear about this throughout the Scripture, that God sees us differently than we see ourselves, than we see other people. God doesn't see you as skin and bones. God doesn't see you as the house that you have, the car that you drive, the job that you do, how big your family is, who you're connected to. God sees your soul, and he sees like this, 100% or not 100%, all or nothing. And what God wants is he wants all. That's what he's looking for. He's looking that he has all of your heart, soul, might. Like, what can we call you? God wants all of it. Let me ask you a very important question. Jesus says the greatest question we could ask from the law, does God have all your heart, all your soul, and all your might? The answer to that is yes or no. There's no middle ground. This is tough because we live in the day of the lukewarm. We live in the world of one foot in, one foot out. We say yes when we really mean no, and we say no when we mean maybe. We don't make rock solid, 100%, never fading away commitments, I'm all in. There's nothing else. There's nothing held back. 100% of me is all for you. And that's all God cares about, is whether he's got all of you or not. So 80%, 90% grading on a curve, comparing yourself to other people, that's not what God's looking for. He's looking right now. His eyes are searching to and fro through this room. How many people in this room does God really have all their heart, soul, might? That's what he cares about. That's the greatest commandment. That's what matters to God. We counted in the book of Numbers, we read that they counted over 600,000 men ready to go to war in the promised land, and those men did not believe in God's promise, did not make it into the land. How many of the 600,000 men made it into the land? You tell me. Two guys. Two out of 600,000. And why did those two guys get to go into the promised land? One of them was Caleb, and he said that Caleb, this man, he's got a different spirit. And what was different about the soul of this man, Caleb, than the other 600,000? Because Caleb follows me, key word here, he follows me fully. That's what God said. That guy, I've got all of him. That guy, I've got all of him. The other 600,000, they ain't coming into the land. God is looking at you right now, and there are, he's either got all of you or he doesn't. That's how he evaluates. This is the greatest command. You've got to respond with all that you've got. And then this is the part that people miss. Look at the next verse, verse 6. This is the, that, that quote gets pulled out, but then this verse gets lost. And this is how you're going to get to loving God with all your heart. When these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is how you're going to get to a place of being able to say, I'm all for God. When God's commands, when God's words are on your heart, then your heart will be all for God. So if we say, hey, are you loving God with all your heart? And you're thinking, I don't know if I could say that I really am love. I think there's some other things that I'm kind of distracted by or I'm divided with or I just flat out know. I'm kind of 50-50 on giving God really who I am. And you're already thinking about that. The answer is not to leave here today and say, I'll go try harder to love God with all my heart this week. That's not going to do it. 
This isn't a willpower thing. This isn't a working on it thing. This isn't maybe if I think about God more, I could have more feelings for him and love him more. You want to know how your whole heart is going to be for God? When your whole heart is filled with God's words. That's how your heart will be all for him. It's not even something that you can do. You you can't even just make yourself love God more. As you really get to know Him through His Word and He does that work in you, then you will love Him more. If you want all of your heart to be for God, you've got to have God's words on your heart. That's how you're going to get there. Do you see why now when I say, hey, let's read Deuteronomy and some people get excited That really makes me concerned for the people who are not excited, not because I want you to read the Bible or do it with us in some kind of program, but I want your whole heart to be for God. And how can your heart be for God if his words aren't on your heart? You're never going to get there. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, you're not there. And that's the relationship you're going to have with God. He's looking for one thing. He wants all of you. And the only way that you could possibly give him all that you are is you have to get his word in you. You have to live by it. So you got to read this. you got to get his commands today on your heart. That's how it's going to happen. It's all or nothing. I want to show you an example of how a man went to be a man who loved God with all of his heart. I want to give you an example of this, how you could go from not being this person to being this person right here today. Turn with me to 2 Kings 22, and let's, let's learn about this from King Josiah. This is 2 Kings 22. It's page 329 if you got one of our Bibles. Okay, and King Josiah, he's referred to as the boy king sometimes because it says here in 2 Kings 22, verse 1, that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Can you imagine an eight-year-old king? I've seen some of them at the grocery store. Have you seen those guys? An eight-year-old king, okay? And, and it says something here. It uses this way to judge the kings or introduce the kings Throughout the book of Kings here, look at verse 2. And it says that Josiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or the left. See, it, it tells you, this king that you're about to hear the history of, you're about to read his life story, it tells you right away, this either king did what was right in the sight of the Lord or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not like, a, hey, this king, he was kind of a mixed bag. You don't, you're not going to hear that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't exist in this murky world that we live in today where you can say you love God and still keep on living in sin. No, it's saying you either do what was right in God's sight or you're evil in God's sight because God's sight is based on all or nothing. Here's an example of an all guy. You want to be an all person? Well, we better learn how did this guy, how did the eight-year-old boy king become one of those who was all heart, all soul, all might, for God. Well, here's how it went down. Verse 3, in the 18th year of King Josiah, so now we're 10 years into his reign, and he's becoming a man, at least in the state of California. You turn 18, you're an adult now. The king sent two guys we're going to need to know here. First one is Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. 
that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord. So there's two other characters that we're going to see today besides Josiah. Shaphan, the secretary, that makes it easy. Both start with us. Hilkiah, the high priest. So they're really helping us out here, okay? We got a secretary who's going to the high priest because King Josiah, he's like, hey, the temple is not doing well. We need to do some repairs in the temple. By this time in the history of Israel, it's not a tabernacle anymore. It's a temple. So here's what you need to see. On the timeline, Moses is like 1400 B.C. Okay, so there's 1400 years from Moses to Jesus. Josiah, he's right here in the middle in the 600 B.C.s. So he's an equal distance from Moses to Jesus. So this is the middle of Israel. The kingdom's divided. There's a northern kingdom. Josiah's down here in the southern kingdom of Judah. And at this point, things have gotten really bad for God's people, and they, the temple's in a place of disrepair. And this guy, this king, he's like, hey, I care about the temple. We need to repair it. We need to get it back to the way it should be. We've got some money. Let's go make sure that we're rebuilding the temple. And when they set out to rebuild the temple, this happens. Verse 8, Hilkiah, after they talk the money between the secretary and the high priest, they figure out the repairs. Verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I just picture when they're done talking business, I picture Hilkiah coming up to Shaphan, maybe putting his hand on his shoulder, maybe looking him right in the eyes and saying, hey, I have found a book. That means at this time, Nobody knew the law of Moses. Nobody even knew anything in these five books. They had completely lost the word of God. And the high priest says to the secretary, hey, when we were getting into the temple and getting ready to do some repairs, I found a book. And the high priest gives it to the secretary. And the secretary, when he reads it, he brings it before the king. What he says in verse 10, Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king, Josiah, 18 years old, heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He reads the whole story of God and his people, the exodus, the wanderings in the wilderness, the warnings of Deuteronomy that I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to set before you two choices, life and death, blessings and curses, and the way that you go into this land, how you live, whether I'm your one God or you worship many gods, will determine whether you live or whether you die. And when Josiah hears this, he is in such mourning, such a state of weeping, as the king, he tears his clothes. Because he knows that we are busted. We did not live by this book. And so he gets together a committee here, a group of people, and he sends them to this prophetess to inquire of the Lord, what should we do? We just found the book. We just read it. We're disobeying it. We've totally done all the things the book tells us not to do. All the warnings in Deuteronomy, we didn't listen to them. We didn't even know they were there. We lost the book completely. What do we do now? And the word comes back, the word of the Lord, and it's basically, I'm going to judge all of you. You're going to be destroyed is what's going to happen. You picked the way of curses. You didn't even pay attention to the word. You didn't even know there was a word. You're going to be judged. But, he says in verse 18, but 
to the king of Judah, but, but specifically say this to Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. Thus you shall say to him, this is what Yahweh says, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent, because you were sorry, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And make no mistake, I'm going to do what my word says. I'm going to judge my people. I'm, this place is going to be destroyed and cursed. But you, Josiah, because you heard the word and were sorry, because you heard the word and were humbled, because you rediscovered my law and had a broken heart, your days will be in peace, and after your days will come the judgment. And from this moment forward, Josiah, he is different. He gathers the entire nation together, and they read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to every man, woman, and child in the land. Everybody now is going to know the law, and he starts going through, and every idol, all these different idols that have been put up, all these other gods, he's just tearing down idols, burning up idols, destroying idols. And by the end of it, look what it says. Go over to chapter 23, verse 25. Like, if you want to go in full heart, all your heart, for God today, here's the verse to memorize. Here's the description of Josiah. It says, before him, there was no king like him. This is 23:25. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. There was no king like this before. There was no king like this after. Because here's what you got to understand. When I say, hey, the greatest command is for every single one of us to love God with all of our heart, we start to get this idea, well, to love God with all of my heart, I'd have to be like some super spiritual, almost perfect person. The, the example of Josiah says, no, that's not the case at all. Here's all you got to do. You got to rediscover what God says. And when you hear what God says, do you turn to it with all that you are? You don't have to already be somebody. You can come as you are today, but you got to rediscover the book. You got to rediscover what God's saying in Deuteronomy. And as you hear what God says, are you sorry? Are you humbled? Are you willing to admit you don't have it all together, but you want to do what God says? And as his commands are on your heart, do you turn to him and give him all your heart, soul, and might? That's all you got to do is respond. Even right here, right now, as you hear the word of the Lord, you could acknowledge to yourself, I am not all in, but today, God, I turn to you with all my heart. That's what Josiah did, and there was nobody, no king ever like this guy. Just because he heard it, and he turned to it with all that he was. Point number two, you have to go all in. You have to go all in. If you're already all in, your amen to this point. If you have not gone all in, you have to. You have to hear the word. When the commands are on your heart, when God's word is working within you and he's drawing you and he's doing that mighty work to stir you up in your soul, to put a fire, a passion within you for him. 
You've got to turn to him with all that you've got. You don't have to already be there. You don't have to all be put together. But when you hear it, when God speaks to you through his word, you've got to turn to him. And you've got, he loved how Josiah was sorry. He loved how Josiah was humble. He was not acting like a put-together person. He was acting like, I need what God says. There's one God. There's one way to live. And I need God's words in my heart. I'm turning to this with all I've got. That guy. He's the guy you want to be like. That's what the Bible says. There's nobody like this guy. This is the kind of person that God's really looking for, the person who goes all in because they hear these words. Do God's words, God's commands, are they on your heart? That's how you're going to respond to God with all your heart. And I'm just saying, coming and hearing one sermon a week is not going to get God's commands on your heart so that it's your driving passion in life and you're ready to give all you are to God. No, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. Someone who loves the law is someone who's going to love God with all their heart. So you've got you to rediscover the book and then turn to it with all that you've got. Now go back to Deuteronomy 6 and, and you'll see the flow of thought here. You'll see what's at stake. There's only one God. There's only one way that this is going to work for you. And as you hear God's word, you've got to give him all that you've got. There's one God and he wants all of you. And, and here's what's on the line. We're playing for keeps. Like I said, we're getting real here today. And it says, you shall teach them these commands that are on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Your kids' souls are on the line. You want your kids to go to heaven? Well, here's how it works. There's only one way to get there. you got to respond to God with all your heart. And when God's words are really on your heart, then out of the overflow of your soul, out of the burning passion for God within you, you will pass on God's word that's on your heart. You'll pass it on to your children. Your kids' souls are on the line. And what's going to make the difference? What's going to make it in your family? Whether your heart belongs to God or not, that's the difference. We're not talking about being Christian people. We're not talking about being church-going people. We're talking about being all-or-nothing people. And when dad or mom are all in for God, it gets passed on to their kids. That's what it's saying. This is how it works. The fate of your children's souls it's played out by what's going on in your heart right now. Whether you're all in or not. You think it doesn't matter how much you love God? You think it doesn't matter how much you're in God's Word? It matters with your kids. That's how much it matters. See, God's plan was not that you would bring your kids to church. God's plan was not that the youth pastor would teach your kids the Bible. It wasn't that the Christian school would teach your kids the Bible. God made it very clear that parents, dads and moms, are supposed to teach their kids the Bible at home. That's always been God's plan for the family. Always. We got a lot of people outsourcing their primary job as a parent. Okay, so I know there's a lot that gets said today about equality. There's a lot about men and women equal pay. Well, I'll just tell you right now that there's not equal blame on this one and that the main problem with this is with how many bad dads we've got. Okay, let me just tell you, uh, we need to rethink the definition of a bad dad here today. 
We think a bad dad is somebody who's not around, somebody who's absent, somebody who doesn't really care. But the, but the cool dad that does sports with his kids, the cool dad that spoils his kids, the cool dad that has a lot of fun with his kids or does homework with his kids or reads stories to his kids, the cool dad, the fun dad, that's a good dad. Let me just tell you straight up here today, if you don't teach your kids the Bible, you're a bad dad. That's what it's saying. The job description of a dad of a mom is that God's word is burning on your heart and you teach it diligently to your children. That's the job. That, there it is right there. That's the pillar of society. That's the foundation of the family. This is the whole thing of civilization that parents' hearts need to burn for God and they pass it on to the next generation. This is the purpose of life. That's why this is the most famous passage because it's the key to your family making it right here. And it starts in your heart. See, I know right away when we get into this and we start talking about family Bible time and we start talking about reading the Bible with your kids. See, I've been talking about this for a while and what people want is they want, give me the tip, give me the trick, give me the tactic, show me the way that I can get my kids interested in the Bible, that I can teach them, show me the method, give me a program. Here's the program, it's your heart all in for God. It's God's word on your heart. That's the program right there. That's it. There's no tips. There's no tricks. I mean, there's things we can learn how to do. There's ways to do it that are better than other ways to do it. But this is the whole ball game. Either God's got all your heart and his word is coming out of your heart or it's not going to work. That's it. That's it. Okay. And, and look, it's a command. It doesn't say, hey, if, you're, if, you're, if your spouse and you are both on the same page, teach the Bible to your kids. If your kids can actually pay attention and listen to you, teach the Bible to your kids. It says teach it diligently. That's not a word we like very much these days. That's not a good vibes, positivity kind of word, right? You say, hey, how are you working today? Diligently. I mean, I've, when you say that, I think there's like blood, sweat, and tears involved. I mean, that sounds like hard work when you're going to do something diligently. I don't know. I can't tell you how many dads, they hear a message like this. They're like, yeah, I guess I should read the Bible with my kids. And then dad comes in and he's like, I guess I'm going to read the Bible now with my family. And mom looks at him like, oh, you're going to get your act together now. I mean, we're getting real here today. Mom's throwing some shade. Mom's looking at dad like you're going to teach me something from the Bible. I mean, this is how it really goes. And then he tries to sit down with the kids and they're fidgety and they're all over the place and they're not really paying attention or he's trying to talk to their teenager and the teenager's just not interested, doesn't want to have the conversation, doesn't want to go there. And dad's like, I tried. No, no, dad, you got to die trying. I don't, care. don't give me a lame excuse that you tried. You're a bad dad unless you do it diligently unless you teach it until you're dying trying to do it. That's what it's saying. This is your life. This is who you are. This is why God gave you these kids, was so that you could teach them about God. That is the whole job. And so I'm saying, if you're a bad dad, you need to turn to God with all of your heart here today. And one of the things that's been so exciting to see here among us is some of these dads catching fire here at this church. I mean, some of these dads, they're just, they're just going for it. They don't care what their wife's going to say. They don't care what their kids are going to say. They're going after God, and everybody else is coming with them. Like it or not, here we go. And they're gentle about it. 
They do it in love. But see, what there is, is there's this burning passion. There's this all-in commitment. There's this, I can't get enough of the Bible, and nothing's more contagious at home than a dad who can't get enough of the Bible. Now, we also have some moms. We've got some moms. When dad's not doing it, we got some moms. They step up, and they go for it. And they're teaching those kids, and they're memorizing verses with those kids, and they're praying with those kids every day. I mean, we got some parents here who are getting what this is saying, and they're going home and doing it, and what we're seeing is life in the family. We're seeing a revival happening, not at church, not in the youth group, not here in the service. No, it's happening in people's homes where God is doing a mighty work in the family because dad and mom are all in and it's spreading. Now that's an exciting place to be. That's a great... See, it has to start in your heart if you want it to happen in your home. We like to say that home is where the heart is. Well, the Scripture is saying to us today that where your heart is is going to determine where your home is. And so when Dad locks in, all in, for the Lord, get as much of that Word in my heart as possible, it has this beautiful effect on the family. And it's how God designed it to be. I had a conversation with a dad here at our church a few weeks ago. He came up after one of the sermons and he says, I don't know if I'm really living by faith to go into the promised land myself. I think I'm actually living by fear and I'm not taking that step of obedience that God wants me to take. And we talk about it. We've got a great conversation. We pray. It's like, pound it, man. Let's go all in. It's all or nothing. Everything we do by faith. Let's go. That dad, he just made the all in commitment right there. He goes home, he starts reading through the Bible with his family. This is very powerful now. Locked in dad, wife that's right there with him. Now we're going to start giving it to our kids. We got junior high kids, everybody. Warning, danger, okay? Because this is the moment where right here, teenager time, where we stop being a little kid and we start having a mind of our own. Anybody know what I'm talking about? See, there's kind of two different times of parenting. When there's the time where you can raise your voice and you can tell your kid what to think and a lot of kids will go along with you and then there's the time where the child has a mind of their own and you now have to interact with what they're thinking and you've got to have a relationship, a conversation and you've got to help them think the right things. You can't just tell them what to think anymore. You've got to know what you believe. You've got to hear what they believe and you've got to have a real conversation about it and that starts when we start getting into junior high. The world's coming at them with all that it's got to offer come and be like everybody else you can find life here 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 and you're at home saying there's only one place we're going to find life and it gets real and a lot of parents back away from that conversation a lot of a lot of parents with adult children have completely backed away from that conversation a lot of grandparents have backed away from that conversation the real conversation here's what you think here's what god says let's talk about it that's parenting right there and they start doing it. Simple. Family. Locked in. In the Word. Junior high student coming to the parents at family Bible time saying, Hey, Mom, Dad, I want to confess sin to you. Can you imagine that? They didn't even get caught, everybody. They just opened up. The next night at Bible time, family Bible time, here comes junior high student. Here's actually the device I was getting in trouble with. Here's actually what I was doing. Here's actually all the sins, not caught, confessing. Is that a miracle to anybody else here? Is that powerful? 
What's happening the next night? Oh, this fire for the word, this changing of behavior, the deeds in keeping with repentance. You know where that revival happened? No youth pastor required, no small group leader needed. Dad, mom, kids, Bible, revival. That's what happened. Look, if you're praying for your kids to get saved, I sure hope you're praying for your kids to get saved. I mean, I don't know what, the other, what would be the other option than that, right? Of course you're praying for your kids to get saved. I want to challenge you. Are you praying, God, use me to save my kids? That's what you should be praying. Dads should be the number one disciple makers of their kids. Moms, if dad's not doing it, moms should be right there praying, always talking about the word, always getting into it. We should be hearing testimonies all the time in the waters of baptism. I'm so thankful for my dad. I'm so thankful for my mom. Man, I was going the wrong way, but my mom, she would never give up on me. She kept praying. She kept talking. She kept loving. And here I am today, and God bless my mom. We should hear testimonies of parents leading kids to Jesus Christ. Should be the number one way people are getting saved around here. That's God's design. That's his plan. Is it on your heart? Are you all in? So don't go and think about, well, what are all the tactics I could do with my kids to get them to listen to the Bible with me? No, no, no. Ask yourself this question. Are his commands on my heart? That's the key. That might be the issue. The reason the conversation isn't happening over here is the commands aren't burning with passion here. You've got to have his commands on your heart, and then you will teach them diligently to your children. And look how it describes it. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Does that sound like a one-time-a-week thing or even a one-time-a-day thing, or does that sound like an all-the-time kind of a thing? I mean, that sounds to me like from breakfast time to bedtime, when we're going out of the house and we're coming back and hanging out in the house. The garage door is going up. The garage door is coming down. And because I'm so thinking about being all in for God and His Word is burning a fire in my soul at any moment of the day, I'm thinking about how can we talk about or read together this book right here. Point number three, family time equals Bible time. When we're together with our family, we're thinking, how can we talk about the Word of God together? That's the goal. Driving home from church today, in the car, even while we're driving around. Hey, what do you guys know about the book of Deuteronomy? What do you know about it? We're going to be getting into it this month. Anybody know anything? What does Deuteronomy, what does the name mean? Who wrote it? What did you learn at church today? Your kid ever give you that one? Hey, well, how was church today? Good. You ever hear that one before? We've heard that one, right? Follow-up questions. What was good about it? What did you learn? What did they say? What was it about? Strike up a conversation with your kid about the Bible. Can I tell you something that I heard in the, in the main service? I heard if you tell me to worship another God, I would kill you if I was an Israelite. <laughs> Where do you want to go for lunch? That's what I heard. What did you hear? Are you going to kill me? Is that what you heard? Well, that was intense. There's supposed to be an ongoing conversation about the Bible, okay? Let me tell you how powerful this conversation is. Your family won't just make it. Your family will make a difference. There will be revival. 
from your family, if there's a conversation about the Bible, and, and it has to start in your heart. It's an ongoing 24-7. Yeah, there could be great times where we actually sit down and we actually read together. We actually pray together. There might be moments where we can tell people are having attitudes. People are worried and anxious about things. We got to gather everybody together. We got to say, hey, we're not in control. Let's give it to the one who's in control. Let's pray together right now as a family. Let's come around. Okay, we're, we're playing for keeps Families aren't making it. More and more kids are falling away. Less and less dads are obeying the job description of being a dad. This is the word. This is the time. Book of Deuteronomy, month of March. Let's go. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Okay, if you ever, if you ever feel like you're losing your fire for the law of the Lord, for the word of God, Psalm 119 is the place to go. If you need that revival, if you need that light to get sparked in your heart, again, if you're not, if you can feel like, hey, I don't feel like his commands are on my heart. I'm not having that passion for the scripture. I'm not having that all-in response to turn to him with all my heart. I'm not like feeling like, hey, we found a book. I'm kind of losing it. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's all about the Bible, and it's designed to get you fired up again. How can a young man keep his way pure? How are young people going to stay pure in the twisted, perverse world that we're living in right now? By guarding it according to their word. Hopefully they got a dad or a mom or both that have it on their heart. That's how they're going to make it. Look at verse 18. These are two prayers that you could go home and start praying today. Here's two prayers to pray for you and your family. Psalm 119, verse 18. Hopefully you've already learned these going through the law together. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's a great prayer. God, I need you to let me see it. I need you to show it to me. I might completely miss it. So you have to start with the basic idea that the law is awesome. It's going to teach me something about God. It's going to teach me about my own sin. I mean, Jesus is showing up in here way more than a lot of us thought. I need to go in. Like, there's awesome stuff in here. And if I don't come away feeling like this is awesome, it's probably user error. So open my eyes to see the wonders. Blow me away. Let the light bulb go on. I need you to show it to me. Open my eyes. I want to see wondrous things from your law. So you've got to believe the wondrous things are there. We're not reading through Deuteronomy to check off those days on the calendar. We're not doing Bible time so we can say we did Bible time. We're opening up our eyes and putting our eyeballs on the Bible and we're saying, blow me away, God. I'm ready for awesome. That's what we're saying. Open my eyes. I want to see it. And here's the thing that's going to hold so many people back. So many families might not go and do what we say here today because of this. Look at verse 37. Another thing you could pray. We want to pray for open eyes to see the wonders. And then it says here in verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. When it says give me life, that's saying there's one God, one way to live. I want to turn to him with all my heart. That's that give me life. You could translate that revive me in your ways. Okay, if I want my eyes to be open to the wonders, well, then I got to turn my eyes from, what does it say there? Worthless things. Worthless things. Doesn't say evil things. Doesn't say sinful things. It says worthless things. 
Okay, so if you got your cell phone on you, you could pull it out right now. You could hold up your cell phone and you could say, everything I'm looking at here is a worthless thing. Unless you're using the Bible app, unless you're, unless you're encouraging one another in messages of text, unless you're watching sermons, all those notifications that you're getting, notifications do not equal your heart being all for God. All the little websites and apps that you're checking do not help you get closer to God and bring your family with you. We're talking about things that matter in the spiritual realm and everything that's not giving God the glory and getting you loving Him with all of your heart and bringing your whole family with you. If that's the main purpose of life, anything that's not accomplishing that goal is worthless. I didn't say it was sinful. I didn't say it was wicked. I'm just saying it's not doing anything for or you or your family. So think about what is family time in America. Family time is usually screen time, and what we're usually looking on at the screen is something that is worthless in the spiritual scheme of things. Going to the movies is not getting your family revived in your souls. Everybody staring at their own tablet is not leading to a love for God with all your heart. So you're going to have to stop looking at worthless things if you want to really get revived and have your eyes open to see the wonders. You can't be wasting all your time looking at the worthless. Have you ever done that terrible thing where you look at how much screen time you've got on your phone? You ever been convicted by that? Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. It it will actually keep track of how many minutes you're on there. And it will tell you. Look, Look, nobody's daughter is learning how to love Jesus by watching Frozen 2. Is everybody with me on this? That's, that's, it's worthless. It's worthless. We will have to get our daughter's eyes off of Elsa, and we will have to get their eyes onto Jesus in the Bible. We have to turn our eyes. And if we're spending family time looking at worthless things, no wonder we're not experiencing revival as a family we got to turn it all off. we got to put all the distractions away. And we got to say, wow, look at this time God has given us here. At the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, in the middle of the day. We've got some family time. And you know what that means we're doing right now? Bible time. We're going to teach our kids diligently God's law because it's on our heart. And so I'm, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. And I'm not even just asking it for you. I care about you. I care about your soul. I want you to be all in for God. But I'm begging you on behalf of your kids who don't even know. I'm begging you on behalf of that child that's growing up right now that you have not locked in wholehearted for God. You have not passed it on to them. And when they leave your house, it's only a matter of time. They will not be living in God's house. They're on their way out. Could be your adult child. They're already out. Could be your grandchild. Some of you, this could be preparatory, that you need to be studying the Bible now like you're going to be a teacher later because when God blesses you with children, when God makes you a dad or a mom, he just made you a teacher of the law. And he wants you to do it diligently. He wants you to put it up all over the house. Put it as like you're looking at it all the time, like it's a frontlet before your eyes. It's on the gates. It's on the walls. Everywhere, our family, if we've got time, it's Bible time. I pray that that will be true and we'll see a revival in our families. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. 
And God, we just want to bring these, these prayers to you. And our first one, God, we need you to turn our eyes from so many worthless things. From so much time spent on things that seem important at the moment or seem fun at the moment or seem like our family is bonding at the moment, but when it's really talking about our hearts loving you with all that we are, it's worthless. God, I just pray for the cool dads and the fun dads that they will stop being bad dads. And that they will get locked in with you. That you will get your word in our hearts, your commands on our soul so that we are all in for you. And out of that locked in commitment where we are loving you with all that we are and your word is burning a fiery passion in our soul that out of the overflow of our relationship with you, we would pass it on to our kids. Father, I come to you right now on behalf of the children of this church. And I pray for some of the dads in this room, some of the moms in this room, that they will get their act together today, not by trying harder, but by getting your word in their heart. That they'll stop putting off reading the Bible and they'll start praying for revival and they'll open up to Deuteronomy and they'll say, God, open my eyes. Show me the wonders. Scare me with the warnings. Show me the blessings. Oh, Father, please, will you turn our eyes upon Jesus Christ here today? Please let all the distractions be put away. Let all the screens be shut off and let the book be open. Let us tell our children that we have found a book and there is life. There is one God. Let us pass it on to our kids, God. Please, we need you to do a revival in our families, and we're asking you now, in Jesus' name, amen.